You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Pru. I'm Andre Pru from AndreWineReview.ca. I'm Michael Pincus from MichaelPincusWineReview.com. And you're back. I'm back. But it feels good. But you're not, good. you're not really back because this podcast is still a compilation of some of the work you did while you were on the road. Yes, it is. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. But I'm back. I'm back, but I'm not back. So we got two podcasts out of the way of you in New Zealand, and, and I really did hate that I didn't get a chance to come discover those wines with you, um, especially given my feelings and quite vocal sentiment about New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc that I'm sure everybody is is sick of hearing, but... But I've seen you po- hearing, Andre. Well, yeah, I don't think everyone. You know, and you know what? I think I'm going to make it make a point of. Uh, we'll, we'll make it like a swear jar every time I I shoot on New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc for the rest of 2018 on the podcast. I got to put a dollar in a jar. Oh my God! What are we going to buy? Well, if it's on par with last year, we might be able to buy a bottle of Dom with it. <laughs> but hopefully, not much more than to buy a bottle of Yellowtail. Oh well, we'll see what happens. Well, speaking of Yellowtail, how much of that yes. did you drink while you were in Australia? Then I didn't drink a bottle of Yellowtail at all. Now, some people mentioned Yellowtail, but I didn't drink any Yellowtail. So, if you're just describing to me, Michael, because I'll be perfectly honest, and I guess there's sort of stats that prove it up. Canadians have um, fallen out of love with Australian wines. I, I mean, that was one thing that... I researched when I did an appearance on CTV News Channel talking about the upcoming trade dispute between Australia and Canada and access to market and their wines. The fact of the matter is Canadians just aren't drinking as much Australian wine. Do you think that there is anything coming out of Australia that might change our minds? Well, look, I think the world is a little tired of Australia and it's interesting to talk to uh, some people in Australia, because, you know, as vocal as sometimes we are about, you know, what Ontario is doing wrong, I know we like to talk about what they're doing right, but we also do make mention of what's not right about Ontario. There are those people in Australia, and one of the biggest complaints about, let's call the Wine Australia, which is the big, um, you know, I guess their mar- their marketing board or their marketing department is that when uh, Australia went out to the world and said we make Shiraz and they showed it like crazy and everybody got very excited about it. Phase two of that was supposed to be now we're going to show you regional uh, diversity in Shiraz and they never did it. They just kept plugging that dead yellowtail horse for lack of a better term so when you were in australia since i guess i think for most people the whole um identity of australia kind of falls pardon me kind of falls there and i know when i first started writing eight years ago i had a chance to interview wolfgang blass and i mean obviously there's some really great affordable cabernet sauvignon I mean, Penfolds is another big brand down there that obviously makes some Halo wines. I mean, there's a few wineries that I think a lot of people would be familiar with. But even now, when I open a bottle of Wolf Blast, I've noticed that the residual sugar has started to creep up. And it seems to be less about making terroir-driven great wines and more about just making a consumer's mouth happy. Which, by the way, is not a criticism. It's just, if that's the focus of your company, good on you. 
the chances are someone like me and Michael, and hopefully if you're listening to this podcast, are going to be interested in your wine, you're barking up the wrong tree. Well, that's that's what I heard. That's some of the criticisms that I heard is that the the large companies would not let regionality get out there because they saw, you know, cash coming in and then lots and lots and lots of cash coming in on these big jammy Shiraz. So why talk about diversity suddenly when you have all this cash coming in for these Barossa uh, and Kunwara cabs and Shiraz and they never got to the diversity. Where I ended up was just outside of Sydney. See, my sister lives in Sydney and uh, Wine Australia said, well, look, we're not going to take it to, I would have loved to have gone to Tasmania. Everybody's talking Tasmania out there. I mm -hmm. wish we saw more of those wines. Um, but Tasmania is real cool climate. And where I was, was in Canberra and Orange and the Hunter Valley. And these guys are cool climate as well. So that's why they also were like, we want to see what Tasmania is doing. And I, I'm, I, I know I'm saying it a lot, but it seems that Tassie is big in Australia itself. And it should be big where we are because we as Canadians seem to be gravitating and the world seems to be gravitating more towards cool climate wines. I don't think it's just cool climate wines, Michael. I think it's just the fact that um, the movement with farm to table, I think we can stop calling it a movement. The fact of the matter is, like, my generation, whether I'm a millennial or not, is up to debate. But we give a shit about what Since we when eat. when did we start debating that? Well, I mean, that's I've, I've been corrected one way or the other. I was born in 83, which puts me on the cusp. But another debate, another time, another podcast. But, I mean, the fact of the matter is, myself and my ilk, we give a shit about what we're eating, where it comes from. And, I mean, there's a reason why brands like McDonald's are struggling to really continue to maintain their profits but a small chain like burgers priest that sells a hamburger for 12 bucks and they source their meat locally and grind it on site has managed to grow to as many locations as they have over the course of five years well and yes local is is big but what i'm saying is it's not just local but cool climate seems to be uh, cool climate wines seem to be de rigueur well, and, and, and sorry, just once again to correct me. Because, it's not, it's because not just... of the acidity. And because we are becoming more of a food culture, not just here in Canada, but anywhere New World seems to be now latching on to what the Europeans know about wine and food. Yes, I, I would agree with that. And sorry, just to kind of put a, um, a coda on the, the point that I just made, um, we know the difference. People my age, we know the difference between wine that's made in a factory and small batch terroir-driven wine. Um and I, I, I don't see a lot of people my age going and rushing out to buy a lot of mass-produced wines these days. They'd rather spend a few more dollars to buy something better. And I think if you go to your local vintages section, especially in a place like Toronto, you'll notice the demographic of the people hanging around the vintages section is a little different than uh, maybe what it was even 10 years ago. I would agree with that. So if you were... What do you think would be the biggest surprise for you of going to Australia? The biggest surprise is where I was. Again, I was in the Hunter. I was in Orange and I was in Canberra. They aren't making Shiraz. They all make what they call Shiraz, but what you and I would call Syrah. Well, it's like the Kelowna wines that we've tasted. They put Shiraz on the label 
but it is most definitely, you know, a mid-Rhone, Southern Rhone-style Syrah. But, I mean, it's it's more Syrah. Like, yeah. what else so can that, I say? And and that, I, I had many many a debate, but not a debate, if you know what I mean. Like, you're, like, looking at somebody, and you're tasting their wine, and they say, that's our Shiraz. And I go, it's not. And they'd be like, what do you mean it's not? This is Syrah. Well, yes, but we have to call it Shiraz because we're Australian. You oh, know, you so go. it's the debate where they, yes, they know what they're making, but they can't put it on the label because... It's well, that being said, I'm, it's probably going to take some time, but we'll probably see a second coming of Shiraz in in North America once that really catches on. Um, I mean, there are a lot of other grapes that have different names in different countries, but it's the same the same friggin' thing, you know? Yeah, and so I, I, I do believe that if we're really paying attention to what's coming out of Australia, you know, you're still going to see the juicy jammies, but I mean if we start seeing the wines from these cool climates, uh, now Tasmania is mostly Chardonnay and Pinot Noir from what I understand. I don't even care about juicy jammy. Just give me some acidity to balance it out. And that's what these places had. Now, as you know, I spoke to some people while I was there. You certainly did. And you rubbed it in my face and I wasn't there. The one that crushes me, by the way, and I I gotta give him a shout out, is uh, I messed up the interview with Ken Helm, uh, who was just like the funniest guy, uh, just just an old guy with with old guy witticisms. Well, and before the interview so cut funny. out, and before the interview cut out, yeah. I heard that you guys were going to talk about Riesling. Did you taste much Riesling in Australia? And I know we've talked on this podcast before about how great the Kelowna Killa Riesling is. So let me frame the question like this. Is the Kelowna Killa Riesling the exception to the rule, or is it more on par with other Riesling that you tasted while you were there? To, to me, it's the it's the exception to the rule. Uh, Ken Helm, though, he is all about Riesling. He actually developed a Riesling room. And the, the, the part I really wanted to hear, Andre, was the guy is growing... For the most part, Riesling. That's all he's growing. And he's got one row of Chardonnay. Oh, that sounds like my kind of guy. And the funny part about his talk with me was he picks the Chardonnay first and puts it through all his equipment to test it for the year because it's only Chardonnay. And if he screws it up, he can throw it away. So that's why he wanted me to hear that. You know, we'll have to find some time to maybe connect with him if we want to redo the interview via Skype. But uh, we got to find a way to get our hands on some of those wines to taste. So uh, you are the keeper of the uh, of the interviews. Who's up first? Well, I think you went to Printhy Winery. I did go to Printhy. Oh, yeah. And then he came to me, actually, and we talked sparkling. And this was amazing shit. Andre, uh, I'm in this little, I don't even know what we're in, I think we're in a, a closet of some sort, uh, doing an interview with Drew Tuckwell. Got that right? Yeah. Excellent. Um, and I'm in orange, and uh, we're talking about a bunch of different kinds of wine, and uh, the one that really got me for Drew was at a place called Printhy. that's where you are the winemaker, and you are... 
setting the bar, and that's not my words. I actually had dinner with a gentleman last night named Dan Shaw who said, you are setting the bar for sparkling wine, not just in orange, but for the region. I mean, for all of Australia. Tell me what you're doing. Uh, So it's now 2018, and uh, in about 2009... We were having discussions and uh, the Swift boys had always been keen on trying our hand at sparkling wine in orange. It's high elevation, it's a cool climate, it sort of fits the theoretical parameters for quality sparkling wine. Uh, So I said, yeah, okay, um, that sounds good, but, you know, let's shoot for the top end. Um, There's plenty of cheap sparklings around, so leave that to someone else. And I don't have a lot of experience in it, so... You better send me the champagne so I can learn about it. That's and they get a free trip to champagne. I get that's it. exactly right. So they went, oh, okay. <laughs> so in 2010, uh, I went to Champagne for what I call an observation vintage. So when a winemaker, you know, goes overseas to do vintage, they usually go to one winery and they drag hoses around and they do a lot of cellar work. And you know, I've done that, and you, you do learn a lot, but you know, I, I was looking for something a little bit different. So I, I got in contact with a whole lot of grower producers, uh, mainly on the Cote de Blanc, and I had a, had a really good contact over there that said, oh, speak to this guy, speak to that guy. Um, so what I did is that made contact before I left, and uh, when I got over there, I'd ring them up and say, you know, can I come visit you tomorrow, what are you doing? And, you know, the French have a bit of a reputation for being a bit surly and... and uh, less hospitable. Um, I could not fault their generosity. They, they, there was about six of them, and they took me in. Uh, I, I, I tried to do the right thing. I went to the boulangerie in the morning and turned up with uh, brioche and croissants. Uh, and they said, "Ah, oh, fantastic! Come in." And they took me through their vineyards. They, they were harvesting at the time. Uh, I loaded presses with them and tasted juice coming out of the press. I tasted ferments, juices in tank. And then I'd usually go back another once or twice after that. Uh, and my head nearly exploded. The information I was taking on was... It opened up such a big world of winemaking that I so sadly underappreciated before I went there. And that was just the beginning of, wow, this is, this is something you can really get your head around. I always thought that sparkling wine production... Uh, you know, required a different headspace, and I think it does. And I, and I think that immersion and that jolt and that information that I took on during that couple of weeks put me in that headspace. Um, and you know, it it is a different winemaking world, as I think something like fortifieds are. I don't think you can just go from making. Uh, aromatic whites and then go, hey, I'll have a crack at fortifieds and do a decent job. You know, if you come from a background of table wine, I think it's quite difficult to just go, hey, I'm going to have a crack at sparkling wine and nail it. You know, so that it, that was a really fundamental experience. And then from 2010, it's just been a continual progression uh, and, and, and evolution and pushing yourself to understand your fruit sources, understand what they're capable of, understand their characteristics, and also then the wine. You know, 
where are you going, what are you trying to achieve, um, what are you capable of, what is the wine capable of and how does that best express um, the, the vineyard and the grapes as a wine that happens to have bubbles. So what are you making the sparkling wine out of? Uh, we stick to the traditional um, sparkling wine varieties. Um, we're predominantly um, Chardonnay-based blends, uh, Pinot Noir, and we've just uh, sourced our first lot of uh, Pinot Meunier. And, and the interesting part is the elevation that you're getting this fruit at. Well, Orange is the only region in the world that I'm aware of that is defined by elevation, so it begins at 600 metres and the highest vineyards are at about 1,100 metres. We have we started sourcing fruit for sparkling wine from three vineyards in the first vintage and we very quickly narrowed that down to uh, a very specific vineyard, Bantry Grove, which is um, in the far southeast of the Orange GI. Uh, that particular vineyard is not very big. Um, it's oh, it, it, it wouldn't even be 10 hectares uh, all up. Um, we only take a portion of that fruit, but we approached the grower and said, we want your fruit just for sparkling wine, and, and this is what we want to do. So that vineyard's uh, just under 1,000 metres, 980, 990 metres, a steep, uh, steep uh, east-facing block so it dries out early in the morning because it gets sun at very first light and it doesn't get any of the hot westerly winds or hot baking afternoon sun not that you really get it there but um, it's it's quite a protected site in that way which is great for retaining acidity and slow ripening you know it's it still amazes me how if you pick the right site and you grow the right right grape varieties the flavor that quality fruit can have at 10.5 Bome or 10.5 degrees potential alcohol um, you know whereas if you're in the wrong side at 10.5 it tastes of nothing yeah. so you know and, that, and that's really key so if you find the right site and, and the right grower uh, then you can have faith that the fruit will have flavour and you can pick on its freshness and its acidity and, and all the structural and textural elements as well as flavour. So Printhi had no sparkling wine at the time you came in, or were they making, you know, just regular old sparkling? No, right? nothing. Ab- absolutely. So from, from nothing to now four sparkling wines, and you just won best sparkling wine in Australia, did you not? Uh, yes, of a sorts. There's, there's numerous wine shows in Australia uh, for sparkling wine, I suppose the most prestigious trophy is the um, trophy for best sparkling wine at the Royal Melbourne Wine Awards. Uh, and last year, 2016, I lie, uh, we won the trophy uh, for the best sparkling wine with our cuvee, Swift cuvee. Um, which, and is just, which is just, you know, that's your base model sparkling. is what. That's the entry that's level, that's yeah. Level. <laughs> so you won it with the entry. So you make that and then you make a, a rosé which was fantastic. Um, still is fantastic. Don't <laughs> makes it sound like you're just throwing everything out. Hasn't, hasn't died overnight. <laughs> uh, you make a vintage and then you make a, a blanc de blanc. Um, but yes, and and in the works is because we through years of experience we now have um, greater understanding and greater faith in in 
Pinot Noir and Pinot Meunier, we have a Blanc de Noir um, in the works, um, but it'll take some time for that to time on lees and, and to get to the to disgorgement and phasing into the market. But, you know, a lot. it's easier to win trophies with, with the cuvee because we make enough of it. With a lot of wine shows, there's minimum volume requirements. So the Blanc de Blanc, you know, which is our flagship sparkling wine, we can't enter it in shows um, because we just don't make enough of it. We make uh, 100, 120 cases, and you, you often need about three times that much to enter it into a wine show. So, you know, that that doesn't get a gig, but, um, you know, there's always wine meter and what have you that can review that. But So what's... What is the plan for the sparkling programs? You have four now that you make. Obviously, a fifth is in the works. What else is going on in your head as far as what you're going to do for sparkling, or are you pretty much tapped out at five? Uh, I think in in the number of wines in that range, I think at five we'll probably settle down there. Um, we have, uh, in a non-winemaking sense, we have a new cellar door which is being built, which will have a very strong sparkling focus. Um, and I, I suppose that'll be the next thing in terms of what wines to make because we'll get a more direct consumer reaction to what we are currently making and we can gauge is there demand for something else. Um, but five for a small producer is, you know, a fairly tidy sum. Um and in terms of winemaking direction, it, it's about um, a, it's fiddling with the edges. Like we we figure we have a reasonable understanding of where we came from, where we're going, and and how we're travelling along that road. But I think there's always the opportunity to make more characterful wines, more interesting wines. We've started playing with um, barrel ferment in older oak. Uh, we we're doing some tirage later because we're seeing the value of that, particularly with the slower ele- uh, evolution of Pinot Noir in tank. Um, so we're constantly looking at what we can do to tinker around the edges that might, you know, slowly evolve the style and to maintain interest. And you've always got to look at your competitors as well to see what techniques they're taking on. We could probably do, um, I, I suppose, one of the uh, more interesting aspects that will come in the future is dosage. You can get very complex with dosage. You know, um, there's you can add a certain volume into the bottle, and you can make that up with a whole bunch of stuff. You know, there's there's some producers using things like brandy spirit, um, a quite strong new oak character. Um, you know, there's a whole heap of stuff you can put into that little volume of. of wine that you re-top the bottle um, after disgorgement. So that may add some more underlying complexity to the wines. Um, and it's about things like getting the balance right with the aldehydic character in sparkling wines. You know, for me, a little bit of aldehyde can add complexity too much, becomes overpowering. Like any aspect, it's about balance. So there's always ways to continue to evolve um, but it's not just change for change's sake. It's got to be a positive change. Correct. So la- I guess last question is, do these wines get exported or do the most of them get, get sold and, and drunk right here in Australia? Uh, look, we, we very much intentionally went to the top end. So the cheapest wine is $40 Australian um, and it 
goes up to $85. You know, so we are, in a price sense, competing with champagne. So, you know, we'd love to export, we'd love to find a wider audience, but it, it's, a matter, it's very market dependent. Is there an appetite in any particular export market for sparkling wine other than champagne? Um, in, in Australia, there, I mean, Australia has always been a very healthy champagne market and domestic producers are being able to tap into that. Um, and there is some very good uh, coverage of sparkling wine in Australia in the domestic scene now. So there is certainly good potential here. Um, again, with the new cellar door, there's going to be much greater uh, potential for direct sales. But export is something, I mean, we'd, we'd like to, to do that. And given that some of the wines are small volumes, you know, it wouldn't have to be a big commitment type thing. It, it's, it's there for the taking, should someone want it. There's, there's no, and the broader the audience for these wines, like, like you said in your intro, we would like to think we're, quality-wise, competing with the best in Australia. And if we're doing that, we're competing with the best sparkling wine producers in the world. So they, we'd like to think it's a quality offering. Yeah, having tasted through the whole lineup, and that was what you started with. I was so happy to see you you know, popping all the corks and, and tasting all the bubbles, which, Andre, you didn't get the chance to taste, and sad to be you. Um, they, they were fantastic. So thanks for sharing that, and thanks for sharing your knowledge, and, and keep up the great work. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming to Orange and tasting the wines. And uh, Andre, maybe next time, mate. <sighs> you know, Michael, I'm getting awfully tired of editing these podcasts where you just rub it in my face that you went on this amazing trip and I was stuck freezing my balls off in a pretty cold month of January and February here. Uh, you know what? It really pretty was a, it was pretty amazing um, just to see these places. And I, I, didn't, I have to be honest, I didn't even think of the weather until I would connect with you and you would say, oh, it's minus 5, minus 10, minus 20. And I'd go, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm sweating my balls off here. So the second of third interviews is with Stuart Hordern of Brokenwood. Andre, I'm, uh, I'm here at Brokenwood in the Hunter Valley with uh, Stuart Horden. Got it right, right? That's correct. All right, good. He is the winemaker here at Brokenwood. And um, uh, I know in Ontario we don't get a lot of... Semillon. We don't see a lot of it. And he just poured three Semillon for me. And I actually stopped the tasting. And I said, we got to get some of this on, on tape. So we're going to talk Semillon. We got um, a 2017, a 2015, and a 2011. Uh, two of them are single vineyard. But I'm going to let Stuart talk about Semillon first of all. What makes it so special of a grape here in the Hunter Valley? Uh, thank you, Michael. And um, g'day, Andre. It's a Shame you're not here. <laughs> um, but not. I think we're doing okay without you. Um, I guess for me, Semyon in the Hunter Valley, it, it, it's one of the great white varieties of place. Um, it, it really speaks of sight more than any other variety, I think, um, really in Australia. Uh, we achieve phenological ripeness at lower lower alcohol. So all three of the wines that we've tasted are naturally 11% alcohol. Um, they retain wonderful acidity, great freshness, and but really, as a it starts out as a crisp, young, dry white wine, lime juice, lemongrass, sort of pairs beautifully with fresh prawns, oysters. But its ability, its 
it is its ability to age that really sets it apart, I think, Michael. So, yeah, we started with the, the 2017, and uh, Stuart said, this just goes well with, with oysters. And you could really see that. Andre, I know you love your food. I love my food. It shows on both of us. Um, but that salmon was just, was just so lovely. It, uh, I'm going to go grab my notes really quickly. Lovely lemon-lime freshness, some minerality, brightness, but a long finish. Yeah. And it was just that crispness with the, uh, with the oysters that I could really sell. So, so tell me, why, first of all, a young Simeon? Um, well, as I mentioned, I, I guess because we're able to get it right at that lower alcohol, it keeps its acidity. Semillon in most other regions um, at, that, at that sugar level is probably more herbaceous and it takes, it takes it up, you really need to take it up to sort of 12-13% to, to remove that herbaceousness in another region, say, like Bordeaux, where Semillon originated. So then you moved me along to this uh, 2015 uh, Poppy's, Poppy's Block, which is a single vineyard. I think the lunch bell is going off. That's what's going on. Uh, this is a vineyard that was planted in 1970 on fine sandy loam soils. So, sorry, sandy soils. Get the loam out of there. And, um, and, and you, you wanted to, to show me a kind of a teenage semillon. So yeah. what was it in its teenage phase that, that you thought was interesting to pour? Well, I guess as the wine evolves, it, it takes on the acidity holds it in great stead, and the, the fruit flavour evolves from lime juice, lemongrass into this much more toasty brioche, uh, almost sort of lemon curd characters coming through. But in its, the wines can go through a bit of a what we call a bit of an awkward teenage phase, where they're a bit, they haven't lost all of the freshness of of a young wine. They're starting to show a few signs of maturity, but they can be just a bit clunky from generally speaking, sort of a 12 to 18-month period in bottle. And, and as we move on to the 11, I just thought it was a good progression to see how these wines evolve. So then, then we moved on, and these are all current vintages. Like, they hold on to these wines for a few years just to show the evolution of Semillon. Before we get into the 2011, what was your reasoning behind holding them for, you know, six-plus years? Um, I, I guess it's... Uh, it's well-known in Australia, these wines' ability to age. Hunter Valley Semillon is one of the great white wines of the world that, that ages. Um, but we need to be able to show it to our, our clients and customers and, and, um, and not just talk about it. So we hold these wines back and we hold our reserves for six years on release to, to show you and so you can taste and see the potential of these wines to evolve with time. Like this is a 2011 wine, as you said, it's on release now, but this wine, this wine will continue to evolve over the next 20 years, confidently. And as you said, you could put it under your bed yeah. for a bush south <laughs> if you need a break. You have to check my social media for that one, Andre. Okay, so we are tasting the 11, and it's, it's night and day difference between the 17, obviously six years old. What were the differences between the vintage of 17 and 11? Uh, 17 was a very warm, uh, warm dry vintage, uh, very good growing conditions. Um, 11 was a similar spring, but the, uh, the actual harvest was punctuate, punctuated with um, a couple of rain events, but... Semillon tends to hold its ground in those conditions. As, um, it's one of the reasons that it does so well here in the Hunter Valley and has been grown here for over 160 years. So we looked 
I'm, just, I'm hopping around here, Andre, because it's, it's really interesting to see the evolution of these wines. The 15 is in that kind of dumb phase. It's textured, it's got lemon zest, it's got a weight to it, it's got some, a slight herbal note, it's savory. Uh, as Stuart said, it's kind of, you know, in that kind of funky phase, but it's interesting to see where it's going. And the 11 has just got so much. It was like sip after sip uh, of a six-year-old semillon. And it just kept, I, my notes just get longer, beeswax, sweaty, uh, lemon curd, savory, some hazelnut, some spice, some melon rind. I just kept going. I finally had to stop. And I had to say, Stuart, talk to me about semillon. And then he said, one thing I want you to know about semillon is, and I said, wait, let me start recording. And let's see if he can remember what he wanted to say. One thing about semillon. I'm sure it's more than one thing. Um, I think I can recall it. Um, what I, was I guess what I was trying to say is that, one of the things that allows semillon to age and evolve with time is that acid structure and profile, but it's not just about acidity. When you look at these young wines, you need fruit weight and volume, and the fruit is really what evolves. That acidity holds the wine true over time, but the fruit is really what changes. I, I think um, if you start off with a green, thin wine in its youth, it will only become an older, green thin wine and I, I think that is a really important thing it's not just pure acidity that sets this wine apart it, it's that fruit weight with acidity that allows the wine to evolve with time so there you have it uh semillon one of the great ageable wines of our time that's uh, that's right so uh andre uh i'm i'm sure Stuart really wishes you were here i'm going to show him a picture of you probably something uh, in your pink tutu which will you know really give him a good impression of you and uh, i'm sure Stuart would like to say goodbye to you now andre hopefully uh we'll see you here in the hunter sooner than later and um always welcome get over here talk to you later andre on to the third one is is one winery that's definitely on my list to visit in the next little while i know they've been good enough to come and hang out in uh, my kitchen a couple of times and bring some goodies for us to taste uh but you uh, didn't actually speak this with time David I was in Rice. their kitchen i was right there in their kitchen and uh, without further ado, this was with Tim Kirk of Clonakilla. Andre, I'm in an office uh, with a fan going. It's uh, pretty warm here. I don't know what it's doing uh, where you are. And uh, I know you're going to be slightly jealous. I'm here at Clonakilla. I just tried the 2017 uh, Chardonnay, which is a delight. Sorry, man, you can't try that one. And uh, I tried the 17 Hilltops, another great wine. Uh, as you know, we usually speak to David Rice. Rice? Rice. Reist, whatever, our fellow Canadian when he's in town, and I actually am here with him, but then he said, you know what, you're probably tired of talking to me, why don't you talk to somebody who actually knows something? So here we are with uh, Tim, uh, Tim's got a last name, but we haven't been formally introduced, so you are Tim... Tim Kirk. Tim Kirk. So Tim Kirk, and uh, he is... I am the CEO and chief winemaker of Clonakilla Wines. Yeah, so everything that David has told me is pretty much off the table. Uh, now it's time for you to have your say. So uh, Dave's told us a lot about Clonakilla uh, in the past um, and about the wines and the winemaking and the history of Clonakilla. Uh, so I guess I should ask the guy who actually makes the stuff, what's it like making wine in this climate here in Canberra? Well, even before we head into that, it's of course we have a whole team, you know, so we, 
I'm I'm simply I'm simply the the head of the team, but we have Brian Martin here, who's our winery manager, and uh, Nick is our vineyard manager, and Sam's our assistant winemaker. So it's very much like, a, and this is part of our philosophy, really. It's making wine as we do at Clonakilla is the work of a community, and uh, we really love that working with passionate people, and we've got plenty of them here at Clonakilla, and you've met David, of course, who's Mr. Passion. So d- does Dave actually work here? Because every time I would walk by somebody, he would say hi to them, and they would look at him like he's new. Well, that reminds me of something that Pope John the Twenty Third said when asked how many people work in the Vatican. He said about half of them. <laughs> Whoa, that hurts. <laughs> yeah. I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that. Yes, he did. So, have you checked? Have you checked your desk for any pink paper? I'm just wondering. Okay. Oh, <laughs> so yeah. So making wine in this region, what makes it either special, more difficult? What's your favorite grape? I'll stop asking questions and let you answer some. Okay, look, that's a great question. Uh, what's unique about what we do here? And I suppose for many people, um, they think of Australia and they think of this broad, brown, warm, hot land. And some of our most powerful and famous wine regions are in, in warmer areas. Of course, we think of the Barossa, McLaren Vale and Hunter, who've been making fantastic, robust, rich wines for well over 100 years, getting close to 200 well, we are a little bit different here because we sit at 600 metres above sea level, so it's really a continental climate, and that means it's cooler. We have a bigger diurnal range, so we, we certainly get the warm days, but we drop off, the temperature drops off quite distinctly at night. And I think it's, I've come to the conclusion after 25 years at this game that it's really the coolness of the nights that gives us our really distinctive characteristics. So... As you know now, Michael, what you see in Canberra wines or Clonakilla wines is um, delicacy. You see certainly some sophisticated flavour. You see elegance. You tend to see good acid structure. And I think perhaps most distinctively at all, of all, you see this beautiful layered perfume. And in many ways, it doesn't matter what the variety is, whether it's Chardonnay or Riesling or our specialty really is Shiraz. Uh, it's that texture and the complex, layered and subtle spice, savoury dimension to the perfume that we really celebrate here. And it's a combination of the coolness of the nights, the large diurnal range, and of course we've got fantastic soils too. We've got these ancient decomposed granitic soils with some really fantastic and fascinating red clay at the top of that. And it just seems, uh, it seems to work perfectly. So uh, that brings me to, a, I guess, a political question of sorts, wine politics, I guess. So you were very adamant of calling it Shiraz. I would argue, and I have through two regions, through, through the Hunter and through Orange and now here, that you aren't making Shiraz, you are making Syrah. And you do make a Syrah, I saw that, but would you prefer they change the name for your region or or for those cool climate regions to be Syrah so that people understand that it's not Barossa and that that Australia makes different kind of Shiraz slash Syrah? Yeah, well, that's, that, that's a great question. And I, and I often reflect on this, that Australia, you know, if you take out Alaska, it's as big as the States. It's almost as big as Canada. If you take, if you take Russia out, it's as big as Europe. It's a huge continent, huge diversity uh, in soils and landscapes and climates. So it's not surprising that you have a whole panoply range of flavours, even with one variety such as Shiraz. Look, I, I reckon there's something in what you're saying. I think if you were to line up our Shiraz Viognier next to Barossa Shiraz, McLaren Vale Shiraz, as amazing and wonderful and robust as those wines are, you, th- you, you would be very hard-pressed to think it was the same variety. 
the way it responds to this climate and this landscape is just so different that there's definitely an argument for saying, well, let's call it Syrah. It's just that when we started doing the Shiraz Viognier back in the very early 90s, no one was really talking about this. No one was calling it Syrah, so we called it Shiraz Viognier. I'm pretty sure if we were to do it again today, if we were starting again now, it would be Syrah Viognier for sure. It's because people can relate to that. It's much closer, as you know, Michael, it's much closer to the set of flavours and aromas and even textures that you see coming out of the Northern Rhone than what you see coming out of the uh, fabulous warmer regions of Australia like Barossa and McLaren Vale. So the French call it Syrah. Our wine is often mistaken by some pretty smart palates for like a good coat roti. So maybe we should do the same. But we are Shiraz Viognier and Clonakilla are such a powerful brand now that we probably shouldn't tinker with that either. So, all right, your favourite grape to work with? Well, it would have to be, am I going to say Syrah or Shiraz? I was going to say Riesling. Uh, oh, no. I, I, well, uh, we, well, we love all of it. We love beautiful oh, things. This is that my babies and they're all my baby crap. Yeah. Your favorite grape to work with, honestly. Well, I have to say, if we're going to put Shiraz and Riesling to one side, because that's our main game here, I really love Pinot Noir. And we're playing with Pinot Noir now. And I'm not sure if you, David, uh, had, gave you a little test. Yeah, that's right. Well, the challenge there is people don't really think of Canberra at all as a Pinot district, and, and we're here to prove them wrong. But it's just a bit of fun on the side. We, we do work with Grenache and Mouvedre and even a little bit of Cunois and Sanso. And then Brian, of course, with his brand Ravensworth, is doing even, even weirder things. So we love tinkering with all sorts of things. The main game and our, and our primary driver in terms of passion is, is Shiraz with also Riesling. And, a, and I suppose you have to say Viognier. But I do have a great... I love for Pinot Noir. So one last question here, totally now off topic of wine. I was walking through the wine store. You make an olive oil. Do you actually make that? You send that off and you grow it on the property? That's right. We've got got some olive trees on the property and... uh I love that too, you know, like if you go to Italy, of course, every, almost all the great estates have their own brand of olive oil as well. So we thought we'd do that. So 20 years ago, we planted 150, 150 olive trees. And then one day of the year, we get all of our mates together and like 100 people, you know, pig and a, and a lamb on a spit, and they get out there in the olive grove. Um, and it's completely inefficient, I have to tell you. <laughs> Particularly... After lunch, it just all falls to pieces. But because uh, everybody's shaking the tree, <laughs> that's right. So, but it's a bit of fun. And you know, ah, look, we love oil, we love wine, we love great food, we love olive oil. We just got—I reckon we're pretty close to having the perfect life here at Murray Bateman. So, yeah, we got a lot to be grateful for. Thanks very much, Tim. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you, Michael. Andre, you should really be here. The wines were fantastic. Uh, I, I'm sure that uh, Dave's going to let me try the olive oil. Yeah, he's like nodding his head, and maybe I'll get to even shake a tree. Uh, I'll see you back in Canada, Andre. You're back now. I guess it's it's, it's back to the regular grind. Um, it is, and I'd like, to, I'd like to thank, actually, you know, because we just spoke to Tim Kirk, I do want to thank David Reese, big friend of the show, big friend of the show. Mm-hmm. He's been on at least twice, probably going to. I was going to interview him again. He goes, no, you got to talk to Tim. Yeah. He says, I'm probably getting boring. We'll catch up with him the next time he's in town when he's got some new wines to talk about. I understand he's back in May, so that could be cool. And I know, uh, David, if you're listening, you wanted to do a tour of Niagara. You know what? That might be something we get on tape, too. Oh, that would be wicked fun. Out there to Niagara who hasn't been back for 20 years. Well, 
Is there anything that you're looking forward to now that you're back, Michael? I am looking forward to giving you this bottle of olive oil and you making me some dinner with it. Oh, I I can definitely arrange that. Um, did you, did no you... idea that Australia made olive oil. I um, call me an idiot if you want, but I had no idea. Did you miss the local wines? I did. I really did. The the uh, uh, one of, some of the first wines I had, believe it or not, when I got back were uh, were some Niagara sparkling. Uh, I had a Chardonnay because that's what the wife wanted, and more than happy to open a Trius Red. Well, um, I guess we'll wrap it up here. I mean, thanks, Michael, for doing all those interviews. It was uh, it was interesting to be on the receiving end and, and to have to listen to all these as well. But I, I'm insanely jealous that I didn't get to do this trip with you. And, uh, I mean, if people from Australia are listening, I mean, like I said, I got a lot to learn, clearly. It'll be easier to do it there than here. And, and I go back because uh, two for the price of one we could do live. <laughs> anyways just remember angry phone calls emails go to michael pincus uh any love and adoration please leave it on our itunes uh page where you can subscribe to this podcast i'm andre or Peru the facebook from... page or go to the facebook page oh yeah i forgot that we have that thing yeah and now we have uh we have a new uh, uh a new twitter account we do which you can follow two guys talking wine so yeah we're all over the place now yeah, we're really All we working need is on like that. an Instagram account, but we really don't. You don't need to see these two mugs. You really don't. <laughs> That's why we're. I don't know about that. People seem to love it when I post pictures of my dog on my Instagram. Well, see, that's your dog. He's cute. See, we're starting to ramble here. I'm Andre Pro right. from AndreWineReview.ca. I'm Michael Pingus of MichaelPingusWineReview.com. Good night. Oh, good night. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes.